0: The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Well, we are uh, we're actually coming down to really, truly, the end of this book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypse, the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, and. What I'd like you to do is before you turn to chapter 22, I'd like you to turn to chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place, and he sent, and the the, the word NAS uses uh, communicated is terrible, It is, he sent and signified, or that is, he showed by sign by his angel to his bondservant John, who testifies to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and heed the words which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace, from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness and firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he's made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those Who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. That is the prologue to a book that is an epistle, that is apocalyptic, and is a prophecy. That's the prologue. Now notice in chapter 22, starting at verse 6, how many parallels or repetitions we have from the prologue in what we could legitimately call the epilogue. Verse 6, "...and he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place." And behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and I saw, I fell down at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he said, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brethren, the prophets and those who heed the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong, and the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done, I am the Alpha and Omega the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And we'll stop reading there. Well, let's pray and just ask the Lord's help. Father, thank you for this uh, wonderful book. And we pray that as we consider part of the formal conclusion tonight, that you would give us, Lord, not just wisdom and insight into your word, but we pray that you would apply your word. Father, it tells us, blessed are those who do the words of the prophecy of this book. And so we pray that we'd be doers of the word and not hearers only who deceive themselves. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so you have this, uh, this epilogue that actually starts in verse 6, goes all the way through verse 21 to the very end of the book. And what you end up having... In the epilogue is, and I, I hope the reason I read the prologue is so that you could see the the, the parallels and the repetitions, right? And there are numerous ones. Um, and so, in a sense, uh, what John does in in the Apocalypse is he he sort of wraps around themes that he introduces in the prologue, and then in the conclusion he brings them back around. and And so. The purpose of the epilogue is actually seen pretty clearly. Um, uh, The second part of verse 6, he sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And then verse 7, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who takes or heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Okay, so 6b and 7 tell us why this epilogue is there. We'll summarize it in a second. Verse uh, 10, said to me, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. And then verse 11, um, just jump down to the end. We'll explain this later. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness, and the one who is holy still keep himself holy. And then in 14, uh, we didn't read this one. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the gates of the city verse 15 outside are the dogs sorcerers immoral persons etc and then verse 17 the spirit and the bride say come and let the one who hears say come and let the one who's thirsty come let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost so what you see in in the epilogue is this pattern of 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 repeating that these things must soon take place or Jesus is coming quickly and then immediately followed by an exhortation to obedience, okay? And so you see that very clearly in the 6b and 7 and 10 and 11. There is a statement of the, the nearness, the suddenness, the unexpectedness of his coming, of the end, and then it is immediately followed with an exhortation to obedience, or to pursue righteousness. And so so I would look at it like this. So in light of the fact, so the formal conclusion, in light of the fact that the end is actually near and these things must soon take place, we have to heed the words of the prophecy of this book, which means we keep ourselves holy, we make sure our robes are washed white, and we make sure that we have come to to drink freely at the water of life. John Frame, I quoted this a few weeks ago um, when we talked about the second coming, but John Frame makes this observation and it's true here. He says, so far as I can see, every Bible passage about the return of Christ is written for a practical purpose, not to help us develop a theory of history, but to motivate our obedience, (laughs) right? So, so you can think about it this way. Um, so, so prophecy or eschatology, or um, as it were, glimpses into the future. Uh, God never reveals those things to us to satisfy curiosity or to work out a chart. Okay, God actually reveals those things to us that are going to happen so that we'll obey today, right? In other words, because of the certainty of those things that will most certainly take place, what kind of people ought we to be today, right? And so in terms of prophecy, in terms of eschatology, the, the, in a sense, the practical matters of application of how your life is impacted is, is in a sense, let me just say it this way, the, the ethical implications that Jesus is going to return and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, that has the, the, the import of that is far more important than, um, than just filling out the, the chart so that you can have cool charts and try to figure out the details. In fact, I would much rather have a saint say, I don't understand the details, I get the big picture, Jesus returns, he wins in the end, he wins big, and he has an eternal kingdom, a new heaven and a new earth, and say, as far as the details go, I don't know anything about the details, but that changes my life today. Far better to have a life that's brought into ethical conformity to the word of God than to have your eschatological details all worked out, okay? we'll come back to that, I'm sure. All right, verses 6 and 7, heed the faithful and true words. So much of this really ends up being repetitive. Um, In verse 6, he said to me, so the the angel, um, some argue that it's Jesus, um, these words are faithful and true. And of course, Faithful and true, so when Jesus returns in, in chapter 19, uh, he is the faithful and true witness, right? And we've already seen the fact that, um, that he is faithful and true, going all the way back to the beginning. And so these words are faithful and true. That is, they're sure, they're steadfast, they are, they are inviable. they will most certainly, these things will most certainly happen. And then, the second part of verse 6, And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things that soon must take place. And so, by the way, this is simply a repetition of what he already said back in in chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And so this language, the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, actually similar to an expression in, uh, in Numbers 27:16 where where God is identified as the God of the spirits of all flesh. So you you could you could probably translate it something like this. The God who rules over or inspires the spirits of the prophets. He sent his angel to show, right, his bond servants what must soon take place. So so here's um, it's interesting connection if you think about it, so you have God who is Lord who is God of the spirits of the prophets well who who would the prophets be in in that sense? be all of the Old testament prophets okay and in fact, when you get to the book of revelation we've already pointed out the fact that there are That there are, in all likelihood, well over 400 allusions to Old Testament texts in the book of Revelation. The only book of the New Testament that even comes close to rivaling the use of the Old Testament is the book of Hebrews. All right? So, So, Revelation is absolutely chock full of all of these allusions and parallels and connections back to primarily the prophets. And by the way, primarily. Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah and Daniel, right? And so, so what John is doing in this passage is he is actually saying that the, that the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, right, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, so forth, right, it is that God who did what? Sent his angel to actually show his bondservants. Well, show his bondservants through whom? Well, through John, Right? By the way, that's explicit back in the prologue. Here, it's simply implied. And so what John is doing is John is simply identifying the fact that that God has inspired all of the prophets, and it culminates in the one to whom the angel is sent in order to show the bondservants that these things must soon take place. In other words, in a sense, what John is doing is John is... John is in a sense, and I don't mean this like that he was doing it this proudly, he just is in terms of of revelation he's positioning himself as in a sense, the final prophet right so God has inspired and ruled over the spirits of the prophets in times past, and now what has he done? He sent his angel to actually show that all of this stuff must soon take place, and so here's um in a sense, what you could, what you could say is that, is that John is the last canonical prophet. Okay? Now, Jesus says then, in this, uh, by the way, verse 7 is definitely Jesus. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds or obeys the words of the prophecy of this book. And so Jesus says, behold, I'm coming quickly. Have we read that before in the book of Revelation? And the answer is, of course. Now, just as a a reminder, there is a sense where um, Jesus says, uh, for instance, in a couple of the seven letters to the churches, uh, behold, I'm coming quickly, and that may not be, in a, those uses may not be, in a sense, the, the ultimate or final second advent of, of the Lord. Those could be, in a sense, he's coming in judgment. All right? But the rest of the uses almost certainly point us to, in a sense, this final climactic second advent. All right? So when he says, I'm coming quickly, this is. I think this is important for us to understand that when he says, I'm coming quickly, the, the first century Christians would have read those passages and they would have most certainly seen a connection with A.D. 70. Okay? I'm not saying that the first century Christians believed that A.D. 70 was the second coming. But they, they could not have helped but to see, uh, in a sense, the coming of Christ in judgment. One, one of our problems is that, is that we actually do not have a very good grasp of the magnitude of what happens in A.D. 70. Okay. It is massive. And there are things that happen. By the way, it's not just um, that the um, the Romans under General Titus come and and sack Jerusalem, right? It's actually way bigger than that. There is um, there are there are theological implications to the destruction of Jerusalem. So, for instance, AD seventy ends up being. God absolutely closing the door on the priesthood and sacrifices. In other words, the Old Covenant, as it was unveiled in the Hebrew Scriptures, comes to a definitive end. Is it any wonder the writer to the Hebrews, writing right around 64 to 66, says that which is obsolete is about to pass away? Okay? All right? So, by the way, so, so, so when does the Old Covenant uh, end? Well, in one sense, it ends with the death of Jesus. But in another sense, historically, it ends once those sacrifices can no longer be made, and a priesthood, in a sense, no longer exists, right? So what happens is massive, okay? So those first century Christians, as uh, as they see this destruction of Jerusalem, you know, Josephus actually um, uh, uh, speculates that there were a million Jews that were killed in a a three-and-a-half-year period stunning. Okay. When, when, the, when the temple is destroyed, fulfillment of, uh, obviously, the words of our Lord Jesus, but if you were living during that time, would you not think, he said the end was near, right? Yeah. Now, there's another sense when he says, I'm coming quickly, that every, every generation of Christians from the apostolic period to the present has had the anticipation that their generation might be that generation. And I want to say that that is a good, healthy, right expectation. And so um, all you got to do is just watch the news and you think, well, certainly Jesus has to come back because we can't go on much longer like this. Okay. But th- that's what they thought in, in 1000 AD. That's what they thought in 1500 AD. That's what they've thought all throughout, right? We just have the internet now, all right? So, so now everybody thinks the same thing. But, but here's the idea is I'm coming quickly. That has been the cherished promise of every generation of believers. And it is it is our blessed hope that our Lord Jesus would actually return. And so, behold, I'm coming quickly, and then we have one of the seven beatitudes in Revelation. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And so this is, by the way, the repetition of Revelation 1-3. And again, when he says... Blessed, so what's blessed, it's, it's, a, it's the kind of happiness that Ryle's talking about, by the way, in that, uh, in that quote. It is, it is a happiness that's not conditioned by circumstances. It is a happiness that, that is rooted in a sense of confidence that who God is and what he does is the very foundation of our lives. And so, when he says, blessed, happy is the one who actually, then notice this language, heeds the prophecy of this book. So, obeys the prophecy of this book. Okay. So, just to beat a dead horse, okay, the apocalypse is not given to us to satisfy curiosity. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you... Um, Okay, so when I became a Christian, the the best-selling book at that time was still the Late Great Planet Earth. Okay, now that dates me. Some of you young people like Grace, she doesn't even know Late Great Planet Earth, right? And and but we're, Daniel probably doesn't even know it. <laughs> well, we're glad you haven't read it. But and by the way. All you gotta do is go on YouTube, go, you know. Don't watch Christian television, but if you watched Christian television, what you would what you would find is that um, the system that gives us these prophetic perspectives and emphases, okay, that that system of interpretation. Which is, which is called dispensationalism, At the academic level, it's dying quickly. Okay, right. In other words, there, there are fewer and fewer and fewer academics who actually think that it is even a plausible method of interpreting Scripture. But, on the other hand, in terms of popular level, still in the churches and in... Media, it's still the most popular, right? Because there's something about oh my goodness, Russia, 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 Russia has invaded the Ukraine. This obviously is is got to be gog and magog. I mean, I mean, look at the word roast. That sounds like Russia. <laughs> By the way, that was that was how Lindsey's exegesis of of. Uh, uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, is that, is that Rosh, which by the way, just in, in Hebrew just means head, he's like, Rosh, well, that's Russia, okay? Well, that is, that, that's about the dumbest thing ever, but guess what? It sells books, it gets views, and people still absolutely love it. But let me just ask you this, what, what practical value does any of it have for the Christians walk in faith and holiness? And the answer is a big, fat zero. Okay. Big, fat zero. Okay. By the way, up to this point, they've all been wrong. Okay. So I, I love this story. So I, by the way, I... have when I was a college student, I loved Hal Lindsey. I went to a, uh, a little Bible conference um, that was being held at a middle school in Long Beach. We lived in Santa Ana, and I used to love listening to the, the guy that was going to be there. He was terrible, too. But I, I drove from Santa Ana to Long Beach. I get there, and I walk in, and I see Hal Lindsey sitting up on the, the stage Uh, at the middle school, talking to the guy. I was so excited, I ran out, and I'm digging in my car for a quarter to call Ariel. Guess what? How Lindsay is here. She's like, so? (laughs) Yeah, good for her. So, (laughs) here's, here's the point, is that that stuff may people's interests, but it doesn't promote faith and holiness among God's people. All right? And so, don't don't be enamored with it. What you should draw from from Jesus' words here is that the nature of prophecy is that it's to be obeyed. That should tell you right there that that there's an ethical emphasis in the prophecy that is that is designed to change the way you live your life, okay. All right, now we get to <laughs> O oh, John. That's what we should have called this, this part, O oh, John. So verse eight, he says, I, John, so of course, John the apostle, John the beloved, am the one who heard and saw these things, right? So I think at that point, uh, there's some debate, is it just regarding the new creation, starting in chapter 21, or is it the whole book? Um, maybe the whole book, I'm not exactly sure. But here's John, he says, And when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Now, what John is doing when he says, I'm the one that heard and saw, is that he's given, he's giving personal testimony to the fact that he indeed, as a witness, heard and saw these things. Greg Beal makes this observation. I never made this connection before. He says, the notion of seeing and hearing is the basis for a legal witness, as in 1 John 1, 1 and 2, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, we bear witness. Okay, So that's the, in a sense, that's the... um, the significance of John saying, I, John, I've seen these things, heard these things. But then he says, and so when I did, (laughs) I fell down at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. Now, it wouldn't be so bad if he hadn't already done this back in chapter 19 and verse 10. So, this is, this is not, not the first time. You go back to chapter 19 and verse 10. So, so the, the angel says, Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said, Don't do that. <laughs> right? And I'm a fellow servant of yours, and the brethren who hold testimony of Jesus worship God, right? And so you would think. I mean, I'm sure John was a smart guy, um, but but let's face it, doing this twice is 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 like okay, kind of humorous. All right, now what in the world would cause him? By the way, you know Peter does the same thing, so don't don't get to be too hard on John. So you got to understand what in the world would cause John not once but twice to actually fall at the feet of this angel to begin to to worship and the answer is pretty simple and that is angels are glorious beings. Absolutely magnificent. You you read of the appearing uh, in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord—that I think is—is um, is actually the Lord Jesus Christ before the incarnation. But you read uh, the appearances of Gabriel or Michael or the appearance of unnamed angels, and and nobody says, "Hold still, let me draw a picture so I can put it on a greeting card." Okay, right? Nobody says what. It's like a fat baby with an with wings, right? No, these are these are glorious, majestic, oftentimes militaristic, awesome beings. All right, and um, and so don't be too hard on John. Maybe. You know, maybe if that angel like showed you all this stuff and you're just like, wow. And of course the angel is awesome because he says, come on, John. I love it twice. Don't do that. (laughs) It is, it actually is pretty funny when you think about it. And so, Here's here's an interesting um, aspect to this, though. So, twice, John's tried to worship an angel. Twice, he's been told, do not do that. Christ, in the book of Revelation, as the Lamb of God, is worshipped by angels and redeemed humanity and that's always commended, never condemned. Okay? Which underscores the reality that Jesus is truly God. He's he's worshipped as God by angels and humans. Right? And... If, if Jesus would have ever thought it was inappropriate um, that he, and not the Father alone, be worshipped, he had many opportunities. Okay. Stop and think. The, uh, after the resurrection, he was worshipped. Okay. Think of Thomas in John 20 my Lord and my God, and he falls at his feet. Um, if Jesus was just an angel, by the way, like the Jehovah's Witnesses say, Jesus would have been obliged to say, don't do that. Okay? He receives the worship of angels and redeemed humanity. And as the Lamb of God, as the Son of God, he's worthy of all of our worship. And so the angel angel stops him and says, don't do that. I wonder wonder if John left out. Didn't I already tell you this? (laughs) Maybe we'll find a variant reading one of these days. And so the angel stops him. And then what does the angel do? The angel actually says, worship God. Now, what's interesting is the way that the angel describes himself, and there's there's actually some, some fascinating stuff here. Um, the angel stops him because he says, I am a fellow slave. Wow! So this being that just, in a sense, just his glory overpowers John to where John feels like the only option is to fall at his feet and worship him, this angel says... I am a fellow slave, a soon loss, a co-slave. And a fellow servant or co-slave of your brothers, of the prophets, and of those keeping the words of this book. There's a, there's a couple of things that are, that are interesting, and that is that the minute that this angel says, um, I am a co-slave. Okay, that angel just did something that, um, that we moderns really need to understand, and that is that there is more similarity between an earthworm and an angel than an angel and God. There, an angel has more in common with an ant than the Most High God in whose presence he dwells. And here's the reason. Creator, creation. Okay. The ant and the archangel are both creatures. Okay. And so, this angel puts things in perspective, but there's another thing that's pretty interesting about this, and that is that the, the phrase could be referring to either two groups or three groups. In other words, um, it could be, that the brothers actually are, the prophet, are prophets. Now, what's interesting about that is, um, if, that's, if that's the case here, then it supports this idea, but I would say this is supported in other areas. How many of you have heard of the priesthood of all believers? Okay, good, all right. All, you should all have heard of it, because it's one of the things that's precious to us as Protestants, the priesthood of all believers. What do, we, what do we mean when we say the priesthood of all believers? Okay. What's that? Okay, but more specific than that. Okay. Well, no, no. Priests. Priests were what? Okay? They were mediators. Okay? Mediators between man and God. So because Jesus is the final priest, you actually enter in union with Christ, you enter into his priesthood so that there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So what that means is that you are your own priest. Did you know that? Okay. Hold on. Let me finish. Okay. If you are your own priest, what does that mean? There's nobody between you and your great high priest who gives you access to the Father. Okay? So, let me just make it really clear. I am not your priest. Okay? We're not going to turn one of these little rooms into a little closet where you can come in and kneel and pull back some little curtain that has a like paisley pattern curtain. And then I say in a low, humbled, austere voice, you know, tell me your sins. All right. We're not going to do that. Right. So, so priesthood believer means actually I have access to God by virtue of my union with Christ. Right. And so I don't need. By the way, what this ends up doing is this ends up obliterating the, uh, the, the laity-clergy distinction that Rome had established. Okay? So pre, you've heard of the priesthood of believers. Okay, Is there a sense in which you could talk about the kingship of believers? 100%. If you have been raised up with Christ and you're seated with him in heavenly places, and the promise in Revelation is that you will sit with him on his throne, all right, you could equally talk about the kingship of believers. But what about, have you ever heard of this, the prophethood of all believers? Now, this gets back to what you were talking about. Doesn't mean that I'm a prophet in the sense of, Vic, God just told me you're supposed to be a missionary to Canada. Okay? All right? It's not what we're talking about. But what we are talking about, what did, what did prophets do? Prophets were mediators too. By the way, kings were mediators. All three, prophet, priest, king, mediatorial office, messianic office, all right? You share in, in a sense, Christ's priestly office, you share in his kingly office, but you also share in his office as prophet, which, what did a prophet do? A prophet didn't just go, oh, well, in 2024, um, Trump's going to win the election. Oh, sorry, okay? By the way, how many many false prophets had to apologize in 2020 because they all had words from God, right? By, By the way, that's all a bunch of nonsense, okay? The prophet wasn't so much a foreteller as he was one who spoke forth the word of God. All right? And so, guess what happens? Jesus, as the church's final word and the church's prophet, speaks through his word to his church and through his church. All right? So, if you're there at work and you're talking to a a friend of yours and he says, Um, hey, um, are you going to Burning Man? And you go, no. And he goes, well, why not? And you say, I'm a Christian. I'm not a heathen. And he says, are you calling me a heathen? And you say, yes, I am. And you need to repent. Guess what you just did? You just performed a prophetic role. Okay? Okay? Now, I think that that's what what uh, the angel is getting at here when he says, all right, when he says, I am a co-slave also of the brothers, even the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. And so I love the angel, what he does here, because um, <laughs> there are no angels, there was only... Um, I was going to say there was only one. That's not true. There was one preeminent angel who was a glory hog. And he's, he's, he's exiled and actually has an eternal sentence awaiting him. All right. All other angels, good angels, elect angels, they're servants right? They're servants of the heirs of those who will inherit salvation, Hebrews 1.14, but they are servants of the Most High God. Now, verse 10 says, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. And so again, you have this emphasis on the nearness. Now, what's interesting is that back in Daniel, Daniel was told to do what? 12.4. What was Daniel told to do? to seal up the words of this prophecy. Now John's told don't seal up the words of this prophecy and the reason is actually pretty pretty clear is what Daniel had prophesied is now understood because the last days have begun. Right? So in other words, there was lack of clarity in Daniel's vision, right? So in other words, you can't understand what Daniel was talking about until you read the rest of the book. Okay? So, in, in other words, Revelation shines the light on Daniel. So, Daniel was to seal up those words. Now, John's told you don't seal them up, the time is near. In other words, the last days have begun to dawn. Right? And so, the beginning of the end has begun. By the way, when did the beginning of the end begin? The beginning of the end begin. Yeah, that's what I meant to say. Death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, verse 11 is a little tricky. I'm going to read it in two different versions. Some of you are using the ESV. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Net Bible, a little different. The evildoer must continue to do evil. And the one who is morally filthy must continue to be filthy. The one who is righteous must continue to act righteously, and the one who is holy must continue to be holy. And so you can think, what, what kind of command is this? If you're an evil doer, continue to be an evil doer. If you're filthy, continue to be filthy. Okay. So some people think that what's going on in verse eleven is that the end was so close that the door of repentance was was absolutely impossible. Right. So the one who's filthy is j- just continue to be filthy still. The one who is unrighteous continue to be unrighteous still. Now here's here's the problem is that. I don't think that this that this verse means that people um, should not repent, okay? I don't think that this is, you know, stand up on the corner and, you know, you'd have to change all the sandwich boards that said repent to um, continue just as you are, all right? I don't think that's the point. The... Um, there, by the way, there are too many exhortations to repent, and then condemnation for not repenting. You see it in the sixth seal. You see it in, um, in in Revelation nine as well, right? So they did all of these things happen, and they did not repent, so as to glorify God, right? So I don't think that it, the idea is, well, tell people just to, you know business as usual. If you're holy, keep being holy. But if you're if you're filthy, just continue to be filthy. There's, there's a clue for us, all right? So I just said that don't seal up the words of the, this prophecy goes back to Daniel, all right? Now, listen, listen to the parallel here in verses 10 and 11 with Daniel 12, 9 and 10. He said, this is the angel, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time, right? So that's, by the way, that's the opposite of what John says, is said to John, because John is actually in the end time, okay? But then notice verse 10, he says, Many will be purged, purified, and refined. But the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. Now, what's interesting is that Daniel 12.10 is actually talking about, in all likelihood, the time of the end, so that you have two categories of people, all right? So think about it. You've got the purged, purified, and refined, and the wicked who continue to act wickedly, and the wicked have no understanding but those who have insight will understand. Who are those who have insight? Well, those who are the purged, the purified, and the refined. Does it make sense? All right, so here's, here's the way I understand verse 11, and that is the idea, something like this. If you cannot see these things unfolding, if you will not see that the time is near, in other words, you have no understanding, then go ahead and keep going your own way. Now, I don't think that this this language of the evildoer must continue to do evil and the one morally filthy must still continue to be filthy. I don't think those are... Put it, strictly, so grammatically, those are imperatives, those are commands, but I don't think that they serve strictly as commands. By the way, you, can, you know you can do that in, in language all the time. You know you can give a command without giving a command. And you can state a command without it being a command. Okay. So if... Um, if we're in Daniel's office and the window's open and I say to him, I look at him and I say, it is really cold in here, okay? Guess what I just communicated to him? Shut the window, all right? So the non-command, actually the indicative statement, serves as an imperative, okay? The same can be the corollary. The corollary can be true. So what I think is happening here is that there's this idea that, so on, on the one hand, the closer we get to the end of the end, the sharper are the distinctions between those who have understanding and those who don't. The more the evildoer and the filthy continue, the less they understand. And in a sense, the more confirmed they are in their own wickedness. Okay? So, in in, in other words, the the wicked person or the, um, the evildoer or the filthy, they should actually have a discernment, an understanding of what's happening, which would lead them to do what? Repent. Alright? But if they refuse to see it, don't see it, then They are not only without understanding, but they are growing deeper in their non-understanding, right? So when I say the closer we get to the end of the end, the clearer the distinctions are. I just want to, and I'm not saying that Jesus is coming back tomorrow. Maybe he will. I hope he does. But let me just say that if you are, um, oh, well, let's say... um, Forty years older, over, um, then you will know exactly what I mean, and that is, the there was a time where people were—you had Christians and non-Christians, obviously—but there was enough common grace in our country that even when people belonged to different political parties, they were far closer on moral issues, on um, on worldview issues, okay? Um, sure, you've always had atheists. You've always had people that are committed to uh, define God's creation ordinances and stuff. But even just think back, think back just 40 years ago. Um, think about, um, would you have ever imagined, so Vic, would your dad have ever imagined a day where, um, where you had, I know you, you didn't have TV, but um, imagine seeing um, two homosexuals kissing on the radio. Okay. All right. So the answer is no, you can't, right? No. Um, when I was a kid, on television, you would have occasional gay characters but they were always, in a sense, stereotypical and laughable, okay? And in fact, the only one that was actually really funny was the guy that wasn't but was pretending he was so that he could live with two girls in the apartment so Mr. Roper wouldn't kick him out, okay? Now, okay, I watched the TV that everybody else watched, so, so, But here's, here's the point, is that th- there has been such a rapid shift. Okay? Are not the distinctions clearer than ever? Okay? Are not the distinctions of those who have understanding and those who have none? Are not those distinctions absolutely glaring today? Now, it's not just a matter of not having a discernment. It's actually, it actually has gone to celebration of being evildoers and being filthy, right? Celebrate it. You celebrate killing your baby. You wear shirts saying, I've had six abortions, okay? You, by the way, all, you, you watch any pro-choice rally, for instance, you will have people stand up and celebrate killing their babies, okay? Now, it used to be, not all that long ago, that even though abortion was legal, it still was not something that was was common conversation, right? So what's happened in just a very short period of time, just a few decades, is that the 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 distinctions have become much more radically clear. Okay. In other words, there was a time, maybe back in, let's say, like the 50s, where you had decent, good citizens that today we would go, man, I bet I bet they're either Christians or Mormons. Right? Okay. Those distinctions are fleeing. The, or I, I should say, the, the 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 melding together of of decency, right, and the Christian faith, that's going away. And so, I hear when I hear, um, "Let the one who is filthy continue to be filthy," I I hear it not as a command, but an appeal to, for the sake of your own soul, have enough understanding. To consider where you are. An appeal to actually understand where you stand. If you never have your eyes open to see where you really stand. You'll end up going to hell. People think that they are so absolutely right. How do you know you're right? Because I know I'm right. By what authority do you believe you're right? My own authority. That is blindness. That is spiritual insanity. So those who are righteous and holy, right? <laughs> Continue to be righteous and holy. I think there's a couple things here. One, don't let evildoers throw you off track. Is it easy for Christians to actually kind of despair with how bad things are and how evil things are? Is there a sense of the despair of, of, we're just simply just too far gone, Right? Well, you know what? Don't let the evildoers actually throw you off of your hope. Don't let the evildoers actually cloud the path that you're supposed to be on. Don't let the evildoers eclipse where you know you need to stand. But it's also a call to perseverance, isn't it? Because if you're holy, you're only holy in Jesus. And if you're righteous, you're only righteous in Jesus. And so the idea is you need to actually continue to persevere in righteousness and holiness by sticking close to Jesus, enduring, enduring all of the hardship. So when I was, um, let's see, Ariel will correct me when I get home. I was maybe I was in seminary. I think I was in seminary. Maybe we'd just moved here. I had a cousin who um when I was um when I was 12 years old I f- found out that um that he was a homosexual. And I I'll tell you there there's nothing that you know in 1978 that could freak out a 12-year-old other than hearing like you know, do you know Pat has a boyfriend? What? What like someone he plays wiffle ball with? No, like a boyfriend. And so uh, I get a call, and this is this is thirty plus years ago, I get a call that um that my cousin is dying of AIDS. And he actually lived only about 15 minutes from where my parents lived so I decided that what I was going to do is I was going to get in the car and I was going to drive over there I was going to share the gospel with them and I get there he's already got he's got a morphine pump and um, and his um, his his partners there and had my Bible with me okay well guess what right? They already know. And I walk in, and they have like a little shrine, a um, little statue of the Virgin Mary, some candles, and um, just kind of doing their own thing, I guess. And I sat down and I was asking him how he was doing, how was the pain, all of this. And, uh, and I said, Pat, I want to talk to you about your soul. And the partner guy says, uh, says We're just fine. We are very spiritual people. We are very spiritual people. And I looked at him, and I said, I'm not talking to you. Went back to my cousin. I'd like to talk to you about your soul. And I want to tell you that you can be forgiven all of your sins. Partner chimes in again. Homosexuality isn't a sin. Now did I actually say that? Okay. I said, Well, first of all, it most certainly is, but it needs to be repented of just as sure as your covetousness and your greed and all your other idolatries. And at that point, my cousin made the most ridiculous claim. He said, I've read every single book there is about the Bible and homosexuality. And I thought, you didn't read the right ones. So therefore, you didn't read all of them. And I said, do you understand? I said, you guys are the ones that are making a big deal about this as if I came here to attack you. I've come to tell you about the love of Christ. I've come to tell you about a savior who will forgive you of all of your sins. I told you homosexuality is not a sin. And I'm telling you that Romans 1 says it clearly is. Along with greed and stealing and lust, and covetousness, and slander. I asked if I could pray, and the partner jumped in and said, we don't need your prayers. My cousin kind of capitulated and said, sure, pray for us. And I did. And a few days later, my mom calls me and she says, well, everybody on my side of the family hates you right now. I said, oh. I said, why is that? Because the report is, is that you went and told Patrick and his companion that because they were homosexuals, they were going to hell. And um, I said, well, I know that's, that's exactly, that. they heard that before I even opened my mouth. Okay, they, opened, they, they and then a few days later, he died. And the very happy report was that my new age aunt led him to the light as he was dying. Okay. Now, why bring up that story? Because if people are dying, committed to a life of evil doing they're committed to a life of what the bible would call filthiness uncleanness if you are so committed to that that you can never even stop and ask am i standing in the right place there is there is a delusion and a spiritual insanity by which god may very well judicially hand you over to that sin so that you continue in it until you die and i want to say that is scary absolutely frightening And so as John brings this great book to a close, he's not pulling any punches. He's not giving us a nice storybook ending. He is still warning people. So Christian, continue to be righteous. Christian, continue to walk in holiness. Unbeliever, stop and think of where you are and the fact that if you do not turn, you may become so hardened in your sin that you never hear anything ever again. Scary thing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, uh, thank you for the scary words in the Bible, and we pray that we would be those who take heed to the words of the prophecy of this book.